in the seat in front of you with a red cover will be in chapter 3, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything you do. And do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. Masters. Provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. It's good to be with you guys. We are continuing through the book of Colossians, and we actually, after this week, only have two weeks left, and we'll have made it through the whole thing. Um, which I say both because I feel like it's flown by and because this is another of those texts that kind of highlights why it's probably good for us to work through whole books of the Bible, but you might skip over those texts if you just got to pick and choose. Um, but I'm excited to dive into the, this morning. And I feel like this is the big question that Paul has here, which is what is the place that Christianity is acted out? What is the place where we are supposed to be the most Christian? I think some of us would naturally say that that place is at church, right? And that's not all wrong. Gathered worship is meant to be this central event of our lives. We come together as this physical picture of Jesus' body, and we hear God speak to us in his word, and we sing songs of praise to him. Sunday morning is important, but I don't think that's the answer. After all, we all realize that you can be a Sunday Christian, right? That you can kind of come to church and act out Christianity for half of a day and then spend the other six of and a half days not doing that. For others of us, the answer, what's the place that Christianity is most acted out, might be when we're completely alone, when we're away in our closet praying, when we're walking in the fields with nobody around. And again, our internal life is deeply important too. You can't do Christianity without a personal living walk with the Lord. Listening to him and loving him, those are things that you can only have for real if you have them in those alone moments. Yet the striking thing about Christianity, as scripture views it, is that it is a deeply interpersonal faith. Love for God is never separated from love for our neighbors. So while the water that seeps up into the roots of our faith comes from those private moments and from gathered worship, those are not in themselves the tree. Our internal and Sunday life might give the water, but we need the soil of relationships for that tree to take root. Christianity, as scripture envisions it, is meant to start in our daily lives and our daily relationships. We must be Christians as whole human beings. 
which means that the starting place for Christianity are in those most basic and human of relationships, in marriage, in family, in work. A man ought to live so that everyone knows he's a Christian, Dwight Moody used to say. A man ought to live so that everyone knows he's a Christian, but most of all, his family ought to know it. Paul's just finished this sweeping death and resurrection analogy for the Christian life about the depth of sin and the call to love and the glory of life together as the church. And now he gets down to brass tacks. I love the way he just naturally flows from the glory to the everyday. And whatever you do, says verse 17 that we looked at last week, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then wives, husbands, children, parents. The place that this picture of the Christian life should be most realized is in the ordinary routines of the everyday. And to note at the outset This passage obviously raises some issues and questions for some of us. I know that we can read verse 18 and hear the word submit, or verse 22 and start hearing about slaves and masters, and we've got a bunch of questions, uncomfortable questions. And that's okay. We're going to talk about them this morning as we come to those ideas, but I, I do just want to note that now to say bear with me until we come to them. Because our temptation when we come to these passages, is to immediately jump to those hardest and most complicated questions and fail to appreciate what the basic truth is. So what's the basic truth? It is that Paul wants us to see that Christianity finds its starting place in our ordinary, everyday lives, in our homes, and in our families, and in our workplaces. Christianity finds its starting place in our ordinary lives. So that's where I'd like us to focus this morning as we start into this text. I can't answer every question that each of these verses raises. We could preach a sermon on each one. But what I think we can do is to try to see the common threads that hold them together. And I think that will actually help us the most as we consider the specifics. So here's what these verses teach us. First, they teach us that we are each given roles, and that within these roles, we are called to serve people and to serve God. That we're given different roles, and these roles are for serving people, and these roles are for serving God. So we're going to dive into that, but briefly before we do, because I realized since this morning was a little different in terms of my rhythm that I forgot to pray before we started, let's pray as we dive into God's word. God and Father, Pray that you would teach us and shape us so that we might follow after you, be more conformed to Christ in ourselves and in our church, but also in our daily lives. Pray that you would be with all of us sinners as we sit under your word, that we might hear it. Be with me, a sinner, as I preach it. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you. So, first, the first thing that Paul wants us to see is that we are given different roles. This whole passage is an exploration of kind of these three pairings of roles, of husband, of wife, of parent and child, and of slave and master. And as we'll see, basically all of us, regardless of where we fall in life, fills at least one of these three pairings of roles. Now the very first thing that needs to be said when discussing roles is that having different roles is not about inequality. All right, Paul says it straight up in Galatians 3.28 that there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. You are one in Christ Jesus. 
So in Christianity, there is absolute equality between genders and races and economic stations and nationalities. While Paul doesn't touch on all of these categories, verse 11 of Colossians 3 states the same idea. So we are equal in Jesus, but we are given different callings. And some people use those verses about our equality as much as they're crucial before we start to say that passages like this one don't really mean anything. That because all roles are equal, all roles are identical. And that's problematic too, right? Paul isn't, um, he isn't crazy. That's a good rule of thumb when you, when you start reading scripture and wrestling with people. He doesn't, he's not contradicting himself in the same breath. And so Paul believes in equality and he believes that there are differences in our callings. So let's walk through each of his specific examples and try to get a sense of this first. So Paul first says that wives should submit to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord, which really shows that he isn't being very considerate of me and starting me off with one of the easy ones. <laughs> but, but look, first of all, the language of submission in Scripture is not about inferiority and superiority. We just said that. It's, Ephesians 5.21 tells us that all of us as Christians are to submit to each other using the same language. So it's not a statement of superiority and inferiority. Neither is the submission that Paul calls wives to absolute submission. It is submission in the Lord. There are men who use verses like this one as an excuse for tyrannical or abusive rule of the women in their lives, and that is wrong. It is so wrong and unbiblical that I'd probably be fired if I told you what I really thought of it from the pulpit, all right? Um, (laughs) If you're in that situation and are a wife, that man has gone beyond what is fitting in the Lord, and you don't owe him that kind of submission. And that needs to be said, too. Come talk to me or an elder or someone that you trust, if that's your situation. But what Paul is saying is that there's a particular role of wives that involves respecting their husbands. That would be another way to render that Greek word is to respect not trying to rule their lives or manipulate them into doing what you want, that Paul wants wives to encourage their husbands to lead and to respect them. At the same time, he calls husbands to love their wives, to love them, which is a big deal biblically. Love doesn't just mean buying someone flowers occasionally, although that's a good idea too, men, at least so I've been told. But love means laying down your life and your desires in someone's service. It's what Jesus does when he's crucified, right? That's love. So husbands are called to self-sacrificial giving of themselves to their wives. And in case you had any question about using the wife's role to your advantage as a husband, Paul explicitly calls out that you can't be harsh with her, so you can't be authoritarian or abusive or whatever temptation, like we said, that some men seem to feel. And then Paul addresses children, which is interesting. This is a little side note, but Paul is addressing Christians, members of Christ's church, and Jesus's family, and he specifically gives instructions to children as part of that. Just file that away, and maybe someday we'll come back to that in another sermon. But Paul calls children to obey their parents. And again, that's not an excuse for those extreme instances we want to ask about, right? There is abuse in this world. But for most of us when we're children, that's not the issue we're facing. I mean, I mean, high schoolers, it might feel like abuse when you're a teenager, but, but being asked to make your bed in the morning and be home by curfew, that's the kind of thing that Paul is calling you to, to obey your parents and the rules that they set for you. At the same time, parents are not to embitter or frustrate their children. 
the rules we set and the discipline we give has to exist in a context of love. That our children need to be disciplined for their good, not just for our convenience. There's this brand of spare the rod, spoil the child parenting that fails to appreciate the parental authority is for the good of the child and requires that what all Christianity requires, gentleness and patience and wisdom and the gospel, those things have to be the center of our parenting. And then Paul addresses slaves. And again, because of our history, this is a touchy word, and there were issues with slavery in Paul's world, but it was different from our world. In Paul's world, there was a small group of people who owned the land um, and ran households, and they were the masters, and then everyone else was basically lumped in under this category of slaves. And some of those people were technically free and got paychecks, and some of them weren't and didn't. But all of them would have been referred to um, as slaves in Paul's world. And that's crucially different from our own history, right? Which was about this sort of dehumanizing race-based idea of slavery that denied the humanity and equality of people. Um, In Rome, while still not a good thing, it was an economic arrangement. In our country's past, it was racial exploitation. It is still challenging, though. But in Paul's world, if you wrote the paychecks, you were the master, And everyone else was a slave, which is why in our setting, you could very easily make these verses say employees and employers. Not that you should start referring to your job as slavery, mind you, if you work for a paycheck. Um, But it is probably how Paul would have labeled you, so I'm sorry. Um, So employees are supposed to work hard for their employers, Paul says. They're to do what their bosses say, even when they're not watching, because it is actually God they serve in their work. They're to work at it with all of their hearts. At the same time, employers are supposed to provide their employees what is right and fair. They're to be just and equitable in their dealings. They're to pay them appropriately. Most of our, they are to recognize, Paul says, that their authority comes from God, who is their master too. This is the point both of reminding them that they have a master in heaven and why Paul points out in verse 25 that there's no favoritism or partiality with God's judgment. It doesn't matter whether you're the CEO or a janitor, you are equally brothers in Christ's kingdom, and you are called to treat each other with respect and service. And that covers a whole lot of ground. There's about a million specific ways that we can apply each of those commands to our lives. And in some ways, I think one of the calls is just for each of us to reflect on our roles and how we can live them out. But what I want us to notice this morning is that in Paul's view, these are the places where Christianity gets acted out. It is in living into these roles in marriage and family and work that we serve Jesus as our king. There's good news in that. There's been this tendency in the church to divide people into two groups, right? The really spiritual people who go do ministry work and everybody else. It's like it was in the medieval days. There's the priests and monks and nuns, and they said they had holy vocations, and then everyone else had worldly vocations. It's the reason I cringe at the language often used for my job as a pastor, because in Scripture, there is no distinction in importance between pastors and farmers, between missionaries and medical professionals, between evangelists and waitresses. Each of us has a spiritual calling to be Christian in the roles that God has given us. I remember talking to a female friend years ago who was a year into motherhood and who in a vulnerable moment confessed that she felt like her kid was making her a bad Christian. 
She didn't have time or energy like she did before parenting for the spiritual parts of life, right? She couldn't lead Bible studies anymore. She struggled to spend time in prayer. Have you felt like that? I mean, maybe it isn't motherhood, but you can feel like that from your job or your marriage or whatever, that that somehow distracts you from spiritual life. But here's the truth. There is no spiritual part of life that is superior to the other's. All of the, cat, the things that we think of as sort of spiritual, right? The prayer and the reading of scripture and the Sunday morning worship, those are tools that are meant to change the whole of our lives to be more like Christ. Our private devotional practices are crucial, but they're crucial the way getting dressed in the morning is crucial. You need to do it before you go out in public, but it's not worth doing if you're just going to sit in your closet all day. Or maybe it's just that every part of life is spiritual, As verse 24 says, it is the Lord Christ you are serving in your work when you are changing diapers or laying shingles as surely as if you were working at the food pantry or writing a Sunday school lesson. All of it is for Jesus. All of it is Christianity. And Jesus appreciates all of our labor. So we're given different roles. That said, there's some common themes to what Paul is calling us to in those roles. As much as the roles are different, they are each to be lived in ways that demonstrate our mutual calling in Christ. So first, all of these roles are about serving people. They're about serving people. Husbands and wives are called to be mutual servants. Doing it in somewhat different ways, sure, but each ultimately putting the other person ahead of themselves. Likewise, in the family, children are meant to serve parents in obedience But the godly rules that parents set are meant for the children's good as well. And for servants and masters, especially striking is the emphasis that masters must care for the needs of those in their employment. Whatever you're calling in life, you are called to use that as an opportunity to serve people. I think that's especially important when we think about some of the things that get brought up in this text, and especially about masculinity and femininity, all right? So some preachers like to take this text um, and take the discussion of husbands and wives and conclude that the main point is that men and women are completely different. And they are different, but the people who do that, they seem to think that what Paul wants us to understand is that men should like monster trucks and chainsaws and ultimate fighting, and that women should like cooking and needlepoint and childbirth. At least that's the way that I've heard some guys preach about husbands and wives. But that's just not the case, all right? There are no monster trucks in the Bible, for one thing, except for when my son is reading it, but I don't think he's actually reading it. And this text isn't even about men and women in the abstract, right? It's about husbands and wives in particular. More than that, though, being a man or being a woman in Scripture is never about what we are in ourselves. It is always about how we treat the people around us. Being a man, if you're married in this text for Paul, means cherishing and protecting and serving your wife. Being a woman, if you're married in this text for Paul, means respecting and loving and serving your husband. In fact, in Scripture, calls to be a man or a woman are never pitted against each other. That's the problem with that macho man and girly girl approach. There are a few places where Paul says, for example, you know, be a man— But what he's always saying in those texts is don't be a boy. 
masculinity and femininity in Scripture. Being a man and being a woman is always contrasted, not with each other, but with being a child. And childishness for Paul, when he does that, means in particular living to serve yourself rather than others. I mean, I've got kids, right? And I love them, but they are the most selfish creatures I have ever encountered. It is really hard for children to wrap their heads around these, these complicated ideas, like there are other people and they have needs, right? Um, that's really hard for them. And that is what Paul is calling us to when he talks about being men or being women, that in every role of life, our calling is service. It is to enter into relationship with people and care for them and bless them. And this is crucial Because so often we view the roles God has given us as being about us. We want our marriages primarily to fulfill us. We want our children primarily to make us feel good. We want our bosses to make much of us or our employees to make us look good. When that is our view, we can very easily feel discontented with the places God has placed us. But scripture calls us to a fundamentally different orientation. Our calling in every role is to care for and bless people around us rather than to be cared for and blessed by them. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 20. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. It should not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. John Maxwell, the leadership guru and former pastor, um, I remember him sharing the story about Dan Cathy, the president of Chick-fil-A, and someone that John was a friend of and had a lot of respect for. And they had this meeting that John hosted where they had dozens of these kind of executives and top business people in Texas get together together. And John had asked Dan to come talk at this meeting, right, about leadership and was expecting a kind of traditional leadership talk. And Dan gets up and he's got this big bag in his hand and he informs people that he's brought every one of them a crucial leadership tool. And he reaches into the bag and starts handing out um, these nine-inch horsehair shoe brushes to all of the people in the room. And then he says he's going to demonstrate this tool and he has John sit down and proceeds to kneel at his feet and polish and clean his shoes. And at the end of it, he doesn't say anything. He stands up and gives John a big hug. And then he tells these gathered CEOs and business leaders that each of them should go to their teams, wherever they work, and do this for them. The reason being that it would shape their relationship in a fundamentally opposite way to how much of the world around them wanted them to act. That it would establish their roles as leaders as being servants which is really all of our callings, regardless of whether we are business leaders or homemakers or pastors or teenagers. Our question should never be, what are these people doing for me? Our question instead should always be, what am I doing for these people? But here's the thing. Adopting that posture of a servant is actually good for our relationships, Often it is our failure to serve others that leaves us feeling like our relationships aren't doing much for us. Service actually grows us closer to people as we do it. I remember once hearing a story 
about two brothers, right? And these two brothers, when they were young, they were kind of buds like brothers are, but as they grew up, this chasm formed, and they ended up hating each other and despising each other. And one of the brothers is this man, he's, he started seeing a counselor, and he goes into his counselor one day, and he tells his counselor that he hates his brother, and he really wants to make him suffer. And the counselor, being a savvy sort, says, all right, I will help you do that. Here's the problem, okay? Right now, you really can't make him suffer very much because there's no relationship. You already hate each other. So here's what you need to do. First, you need to get close to him again. So tell him you want to bury the hatchet and start trying to spend time with him and give him gifts that he'll appreciate and do things that he will enjoy and laugh together and share stories together. And then, once you've done all of that and gotten close to him, then you can actually really hurt him, right? And you know how that story ends, right? The man thinks this is great advice and goes off and puts it into practice. And a few months later, he's back with his counselor. And his counselor asks him whether he's ready to really make his, you know, whether, about this brother that he hates. And the guy says, hate him? What are you talking about? He's my best friend. I love him. The reason being that as he acted out that service and love, he actually found that relationship restored. Now, I have no idea whether that specific story is true, all right? That's just one of those stories that I've heard pastors tell. But it does demonstrate for us one of the fundamental truths of the Christian life. If you live life seeking your own happiness, you will not find it. You'll just be unhappy. But if you live life seeking the happiness of other people, not only will they be blessed by that, but you're going to find yourself being blessed by that too. So we're called to these different roles And these roles are about serving people. At the same time, these roles are also meant to be about serving God. These roles are for serving God. Over and over again, Paul keeps pointing his readers back to the Lord. As is fitting in the Lord, verse 18 says. For this pleases the Lord, in verse 20. Servants are to obey with reverence in their hearts for the Lord, working as for the Lord and receiving inheritance from the Lord. Masters and for one must know that they have the Lord as a master in heaven. These kind of lists of household rules were a common thing in Paul's day, right? This list that Paul gives, it's similar in some ways. It does have significant differences, Honestly, one of the big differences is that it has obligations for men, which was not something typically given in these lists to others. But the thing that really sets Paul's approach apart is the way he constantly grounds the things that he's saying in God. Indeed, it is God who provides the pattern for many of these relationships. In Ephesians 5, Paul explicitly uses Christ dying for his bride, the church, as the pattern husbands are to follow. Children and parents are to relate like Jesus, the Son, and his heavenly Father. The Lord is a pattern for masters, showing a way of having authority that is about blessing those under him, rather than exploiting and using them. At the same time, it is God to whom these relationships belong. He is actually invested in how human beings behave in them. This is made explicit talking with slaves. They are working in truth, not for their earthly masters, but for their heavenly father. But the same thing applies to all the other relationships too. Your spouse is a child of the living God. And someday each of us is going to have to answer for how we treated them. Our children belong to God. And our hope is to raise them up to love and follow after him which really leaves us with two questions. First, are we approaching our daily lives and relationships as if they ultimately belong to God? 
it is easy for us to draw boundaries around our worlds. These things are for God, we might say, but these things I'd like him to stay out of. So marriage, for example. What is marriage for? It's for service, like we said, but I mentioned a minute ago, Paul uses this picture of Jesus and the church in Ephesians 5 to talk about marriage. And in Ephesians 5, it's not just an analogy. The really fascinating thing about what Paul does there is he says that somehow this thing that is marriage, this joining of two people into one, is actually about Jesus and the church. In verse 32 of Ephesians 5, this mystery is profound, which is that two becoming one, and I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. That somehow the purpose of our marriages of the love and mutual service and commitment that we're called into, is to be a picture for the world of what Jesus and the gospel is like. That when we look at it, or our kids look at it, or people around us look at it, that it should somehow actually feel like Christianity is more true because of the way this marriage looks. Which is why scripture treats marriage as such a serious business. Because when we slack off in it, making it all about ourselves, or when we break it through adultery or neglect or abuse or divorce, we are actually telling lies about Jesus and the church. We're taking something that should be about God and making it about us. And that actually denies the truth of the God who created it. Now that shouldn't leave us feeling condemned, even though I know that some of us feel it when we have to wrestle with that. I feel it, right? We all fail in our marriages, fail to live up to that picture. And in God's grace, that failure is covered by Christ's blood. But it should leave us feeling challenged. This is what we are called to aspire to in marriage. Not that I'm there, not that we're going to get there, but that our marriages are not annoyances. They are little pictures of the gospel. And that is what we can begin to work to realize in them. That they're the places we are called to let Jesus' love and grace and holiness begin to show. And the same is true in every area of life. The way Jesus' kingdom is made visible in this world is through us living as its citizens. That is why disobedience in our lives reflects badly on Christianity. We've all known someone, right, who can't accept the gospel because of the way he's seen Christians live it. At the same time, it gives us hope, though, because this is what our lives can be. God's loving and kind and beautiful rule made visible on earth. So we have to ask whether we're living life as if it ultimately belongs to God. But we should also ask whether we are letting Jesus provide the resources we need to do that. Whether we are letting Jesus help us do that. Look, that call to service is a hard call, right? Scripture pictures that call of serving people as dying to yourself, okay? And from what I've heard, dying is really miserable. Trying to live in service to others can leave us feeling tired and thin. It can feel like we keep giving and giving, and soon we don't have anything left to give. How do we persevere in this hard call to service? The ultimate answer is that we do have to be served. In spite of what we said about our call, we do have to be served, but not by the people around us. The only way to be full enough to be poured out for others is by seeing our needs met 
in Jesus Christ. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, like we said from Matthew 20. That is a call for us to take up Jesus' example, but it is also the means by which we have the strength to do it. That it's by coming to Christ and experiencing over and over his welcome and his love that we can extend welcome and love to people around us. Or as Paul put it back in Colossians 1, for this I toil, struggling with all Christ's energy that he powerfully works in me. It's only by resting on the power of God. It is only by living into the welcoming embrace of God. It is only by spending time in communion with our Heavenly Father that we will have the strength to work for and serve the people around us. As we conclude... There's one other story about faithfulness in the roles that God gives us that I always find myself thinking about when I come to this text. Many of you have probably seen the movie Chariots of Fire. Um, I mentioned this to my wife and she immediately started singing the theme song. Um, And there's there's a scene in Chariots of Fire where Eric Little is deciding whether or not he's going to run in the Olympics, right? Eric Little has this sense that he's called to be a missionary to China, which is what he ends up doing with his life. Um, And his sister and parents are already there, and he's in seminary. Um, But he also loves to run. And in the film, he has this conversation with his sister. And in the film, she's painted as as having this kind of narrow sense of what Christianity means, right? So she's trying to tell Eric that he needs to focus on seminary and on going to China and that he shouldn't do these other things. And what Eric says to her is one of those famous lines from the movie. He says, God called me to do that, but God also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. That he's called to be a missionary, but he is also called to run. And that God is delighted in his running. And that, friends, is true for each of us as well. Each of our roles in the world are that kind of divine calling. God has entrusted each of us with it. And even though it can feel dull or hard or ordinary, we need to know that God delights in it. That when we run out the calling that God has given us, that we should feel his pleasure. So let's do that this week. Let's step into our lives, into each part of them, in service to others and in service to God. Because when we do, he is pleased. Would you pray with me? Father God, you call us to serve in each of the places you've placed us. You call us to serve you. You call us to serve people. And Lord, I just feel in my heart the weight of knowing how often I fail in that. I pray that you would impress on me the grace and welcome of Jesus. And I pray that you would use that grace and welcome to begin to mold my heart more and more to serve you in my marriage, to serve you with my children, to serve you in the work you've given me. I pray this for each of us, that we might live out Christ's calling in those places in our lives too. Pray these things in his name. Amen.